Egypt, from Abraham to Jesus. Welcome to the Thinking Things Through podcast. I'm your host, Ron Chung. In a previous podcast, I discussed my visit to the land of pyramids and mummies, where I explored ancient Egypt's beliefs about the afterlife, what happens after we die. In this podcast on Egypt, I will talk about how Egyptian religions influenced the thoughts of five men in the Bible. Now, what has Egypt to do with the Bible? The term Egypt appears 750 times in the Bible. Five major biblical figures lived in Egypt. Abraham, who migrated to Egypt around 1700 BC. Joseph, who was sold as a slave in Egypt around 1600 BC. Moses, who was adopted and grew up in Egypt around the 1200s BC. Jeremiah, who was forced to migrate to Egypt in the 500s BC. And Jesus grew up in Egypt during the turn of the first centuries. Each one of them shaped the ideas that led to Christian beliefs about God. What can we know about their place in Egypt's story of the Bible, modern archaeology, and historical studies? First, Abraham. Egypt first appears in the Bible with a story of a Mesopotamian called Abraham who moved to Canaan but migrated to Egypt during a famine. Abraham is important to Christianity. Aside from Moses, no Old Testament character is mentioned more in the New Testament than Abraham. James refers to Abraham as a friend of God, a title used of no one else in Scripture. Christians of all generations are called the children of Abraham. Now, we know little about his birth and early life. We first meet Abraham when he is already in his 70s. His father, Terah, lived in Ur, a city either in northern Mesopotamia, in modern Turkey, or in southern Mesopotamia, in modern Iraq. Now, interestingly, Abraham was neither an Israelite nor a Jew, because Israel was the name given to his grandson, Jacob, and Jews referred to descendants of his great-grandson, Judah. However, he was a Hebrew or a descendant of Eber, a great-grandson of Noah, since Hebrews or Ivory refers to one who passed over land, the nomads, and came to refer to any tribe that came from beyond the Euphrates River on the east side. Now, in the Bible, Hebrew refers to a people and never to a language. What we think of as the Hebrew language in the Bible is in fact a form of Aramaic. However, by the 19th century, a series of incorrect identifications led to the shift from Jews who spoke Aramaic to become Hebrews who speak Hebrew. So today the confusion um, exists. And by the way, when Abraham migrated to Egypt, he would have seen pyramids and learned about the Egyptian religions and customs. Each major city or region worship their own pantheon of gods. Now next, uh, let's get to Joseph. Abraham's great-grandson Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery, and he ended up in Egypt. According to the Bible, Joseph rose through the ranks to become the Pharaoh's chief minister, the second-in-command. Exercising his authority, Joseph invited his father, Jacob's family, and they came to settle in Egypt. But how did a non-Egyptian like Joseph from Canaan achieve such a high office to serve Pharaoh? Here's a quick introduction to Egypt. During Joseph's time, the 15th, 16th, and 17th dynasties simply described different kings ruling different parts of Egypt at the same time. Then King Amos reunited the land to become the first king of the 18th dynasty 
and ruler of a single kingdom. So Joseph would have lived during Egypt's 15th dynasty when the Hyksos, a Semitic people from Canaan, ruled the northern part of while the Egyptians ruled the south. So who were the Hyksos? The Old Kingdom, 2700 to 2200 BC, was the age of Egypt's pyramid building. Next came the First Intermediate Period, which described the decline of a unified government for about 200 years. Then came the Middle Kingdom, 2000 to 780 BC, where the dynasty based in Thebes restored order. People from Canaan called the Asiatics began to migrate first as merchants to the eastern Nile Delta. A second collapse of a unified Egypt called the Second Intermediate Period between 1780 to 1550 BC saw the Canaanite Asiatics who had been living in the region grew in power. Some of their leaders began to rule from the town of Everest in northern Egypt. They came to be known as the Hyksos, a Greek corruption of the Egyptian term for rulers of foreign lands, or Hekahasut. Hekahasut became Hyksos. Thus, Asiatic Canaanites migrated to northern Egypt and ruled at the Hyksos or Hekahasut, rulers on foreign lands. These Hyksos introduced new technologies from the horse and chariot to glass manufacturing and set precedents for the international diplomacy followed in the Amarna letters. Joseph would have served a non-Egyptian pharaoh of northern Egypt, not the whole of Egypt. This may explain Joseph's dramatic rise to power as a non-Egyptian outsider. Now, uh, listen to a conversation that I have with Egyptologist Tariq Radi describing how Joseph came to be prime minister of the pharaohs. I have here Tariq, and he's gonna, we're going to discuss a bit about um, the Bible and Egypt. Now, we mentioned in an earlier clip about Abraham. If he existed, if he was here, he would have seen this because this is much older than even Abraham coming from Mesopotamia. Now, the second person that I wanted to mention was the person of um, Joseph. You mentioned earlier, I found something very interesting about the connection between Joseph and potentially the Hyksos dynasty. Tell us a bit about the Hyksos. Uh, what we think uh, the relation between Joseph and the, the Hyksos and why we, 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 we can think uh, and we have that very strong opinion or theory that, that make that connection between Joseph and the Hyksos time, Joseph was not Egyptian. And on that time, especially on the old and the middle kingdom, you will not have that chance to to reach that high postess in that in that, that state. As prime minister, yeah, to be prime minister, if you are not Egyptians, so it is very difficult. And we never witnessed that on the old and middle. And I'm speaking here clearly about the old and the middle, because on the new kingdom and on the late periods. We found lots of the foreigners, and some even became like a pharaoh on that time. So, but in, in Taharka, PA. yeah, and we you have also from the origin of from the uh, 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 Asian origin as well. Oh, the Asiatics, Asiatics yeah. as well. We 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 found that some of them, but in the old kingdom, you will have just the pure Egyptian kings, the pure Egyptian pharaohs, the pure Egyptian civil servants. You will not have any foreigners to have that. So 
Now the Hyksos would be the twelfth dynasty. Yeah, and 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 we 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 know about the Hyksos. Very little information about the Hyksos, as the ancient Egyptian never gave such a uh, 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 chance for their enemy to write lots of details about them. And one of the rare examples for the Hyksos existence in Egypt, it's in Bani Hassan. Mm-hmm. Bani Hassan, it is a city in, 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 in Almania. Almania, it is Amarna. Amarna. So in, in that, inside that tomb, we can see the Hyksos tribe while they are coming to Egypt oh. on the Middle Kingdom, but they came to Egypt just for trade, not for fighting. So that's why we have that scene there for the Hyksos. But later, we cannot identify lots of information about Hyksos as the ancient Egyptian never gave such a chance in their records, in their uh, 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 story information about that their enemies. They will just mention, we defeated the enemy, we killed the enemy. They will depict them as a captives, as they, they were killing them, torturing them, but not enough I information. See. That's why we think that Joseph and Jacob, the, that's the time of the Hexos to have such access inside Egypt easily like that. It should be that time. Now, it's no surprise that Abraham's descendants adopted Egyptian culture. In fact, something I did not realize both Abraham's grandson and great-grandson, Jacob and Joseph, were mummified in accordance with Egyptian practice. Now, how do we know this? The Bible describes how Jacob and Joseph explicitly stipulated that their mummified corpses must be brought to Canaan. In Genesis 49, verse 29, Then Jacob instructed them, saying, I'm about to be gathered to my kin. Bury me with my fathers in the cave, which is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In Genesis chapter 50, verses 25-26, Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid. Then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110. And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Now, in uh, Egyptian mummification, the heart was the most important organ. It was buried with a scarab beetle amulet with instructions to use the heart to enter the afterlife. Now, the Bible describes a 40-day embalming process as part of a 70-day mourning period. Interestingly, this matches Egyptian sources, which mention a 40-day period of drying and draining the body of liquids, followed by a 30-day treatment with oils. Next, we turn to Moses. By the 13th century BC, The Hebrews in Egypt grew in numbers, but declined from favor. The king began to oppress them. Now, according to the Bible, the Egyptian pharaoh did not know what Joseph did for Egypt. What this really meant was that after the Egyptian pharaohs replaced the Hyksos pharaohs, Joseph's contributions to Egypt as a Canaanite were no longer celebrated. So hundreds of years later, Moses escaped death as a baby only because he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, and grew up as a prince of Egypt. Now, later in life, he found out that he was in fact Hebrew. In a rage, he killed an Egyptian who mistreated a fellow Hebrew and fled to Midian in Arabia for 40 years. 
in time, according to the Bible, God called Moses and his brother Aaron, confronted Pharaoh, and after a series of plagues, led fellow Hebrews and other slaves out of Egypt to form a new community of people called Israel, the name given to Joseph's father, Jacob. Now, Israel means let El prevail. El is the name of God, so it's let God prevail. Would it surprise you then that Moses' Ten Commandments was probably written in Egyptian hieroglyphs rather than in Hebrew, a script that did not yet exist in the 13th century BC? The oldest known Hebrew text ever discovered dates back no earlier than the 10th century BC, but more reliably to the 7th century BC. Some wonder if the Exodus event ever happened at all. Now, although there's no record of the biblical Exodus found in any Egyptian tablet, that is not unusual. Like many nations, the Egyptians did not record their defeats, only their victories. Now, does the Bible refer to Ramesses II? Well, kinda. The biblical texts state that the Israelites built supply cities, Pitom and Ramesses, for Pharaoh. The Egyptian records state that King Seti I built a new garrison city, which his son Ramesses II called Pi-Ramesses. A second city was dedicated to Per-Atum. So the Egyptian cities of Pi-Ramesses and Per-Atum were probably the biblical cities of Ramesses and Pitom. And in that sense, the Bible refers to Ramesses II. Do Egyptian records refer to Israel? Yes, indeed. Pharaoh Ramesses II's 13th son became Pharaoh Meneptah, who erected a stele, a stone, around the 1200s BC that mentioned Israel as a new people group formed in West Asia. Now note that here in the Egyptian records, Israel refers to a people, not yet to a country. Finally, was Moses the brother of Pharaoh Ramesses II? Although several candidates have been suggested, there's near consensus that the most likely Pharaoh whom Moses confronted in the Bible was Ramesses II, who might have been his stepbrother. Now, by now, we have covered some 500 years from the time of Abraham to Moses. Events that happened between the lifetimes of Abraham and that of Moses is akin to events that happened between the 16th century and us today. So much has taken place in the 500 years that entire fields of knowledge and even countries, cities, and races did not exist in the 16th century. Likewise, reading the biblical accounts that span Abraham to Moses compresses five centuries of history into a few pages. Next, we shall summarize the significance of Egypt in the Bible over the next 1,200 years from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus, and note how each generation of Israelites were concerned about different enemies. In the 13th century BC, Moses' concern were about Egypt. In the 12th to 11th centuries BC, King Saul and David fought the Philistines. During the 10th century BC, during the 10th century, King Solomon married Pharaoh Siamun's daughter, and during King Rehoboam's reign, Pharaoh Shishak invaded Israel and Judah. In the 8th to 6th centuries BC, the Israelites were worried about Assyria, Babylonia, and Persia. During the 8th century BC, the Assyrian army besieged Jerusalem, and King Hezekiah asked the Pharaoh for help. By the 7th century BC, King Josiah tried to stop Pharaoh Necho from passing along the coast. Now, in the encounter, Josiah was killed. 
during the 4th century BC. The Jews were concerned about the Greeks, and in the 1st century AD, during Jesus' time, the looming concern was the Roman Empire. The people in each period in history faced very different challenges, and the writers of each era wrote to address them. Scholars have to bear in mind when verses are quoted from different books of the Bible, so the meanings are not interpreted out of context. The 1,200-year interval between Moses and Jesus is akin to us reading about life in the 9th century, some 800 years before modern science even existed. So now we turn to the prophet Jeremiah. In the 6th century BC, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. The prophet Jeremiah told the people in Judah not to flee to Egypt, but many went anyway. Subsequently, Jeremiah himself was forced to relocate to Egypt where he lived and died. His writing strongly influenced the church's interpretation of the Old Testament. Finally, we come to Jesus himself. From the 5th century BC to the time of Jesus, many Jews lived in Egypt, but their use of the Hebrew language had declined. In the 3rd century BC, some of these Egyptian Jews in Alexandria translated the Old Testament into Greek. This translation, known as the Septuagint, became the Bible commonly used during the days of Jesus and the Apostles. So Jesus, living in Roman Palestine, read a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, which was in fact created in Egypt. Around the first centuries BC and AD, Joseph, Mary, and the baby Jesus fled to Egypt to escape King Herod's attempt to execute all the infant boys in and around Bethlehem. Their journey have been traced by the Coptic Church to include 20 towns in modern Egypt. Is there a connection between Moses and Jesus? The Gospel writers in the New Testament portrayed Jesus to an audience already familiar with the Old Testament account of Moses. Moses' 40 years in the Sinai Desert was echoed by Jesus' 40 days in the Judean Desert. The Gospel writers portrayed Jesus as the new Moses. So important was Egypt to the followers of Jesus that someone as prominent as Mark the Evangelist, to whom one of the Gospels was attributed, became known as the Apostle to the Egyptians. Now, thinking things through, here are my five takeaways from examining the five biblical men in Egypt. Number one, God's presence in the world is not privileged by geography or history. Egypt was the common link in the story from Abraham to Jesus. So while Christianity and Islam became the dominant religions in the past 2,000 years, there was a time when neither religion existed in the land of pyramids and mummies. The ancient Egyptian religions thrived for almost 3,000 years before any church was built. This is very good news indeed, as it indicates that God is not only found in specific places and specific times. God is everywhere. Number two, the God behind a religion is often obscured by claims of superiority in religious competition. However, behind every religious claim is the possibility of knowledge worthy of belief. It takes time and effort to learn how to test each claim. You're doing it now by listening to this podcast. Number three, Christian beliefs did not emerge in a vacuum. Egyptian religions shaped the religions of the Hebrews, who became known as Israelites and later called the Jews. They made up the earliest Jesus followers before a final break from Judaism led to Christianity, a new religion in the 4th century AD. 
Christianity developed its own set of beliefs. The new religion inherited, adopted, and adapted Egypt's ancient beliefs in being born again into the afterlife through pyramids and mummies to become the Christian belief of being born again into everlasting life. Number four, learn the intent and purposes of biblical writers who wrote from the perspective of their own geohistories and challenges throughout the centuries by studying Egyptian history. Before interpreting any text from the Bible, find out when and where the text was written to figure out the author's intended meaning. Only then should you apply lessons for your own geohistory, your time and location, to address your contemporary concerns. And number five, science, technology, and medicine provide the tools to better learn which claims are trustworthy where they may be verified or falsified. Thus, almost all that we have learned in this lecture are the fruits of such advances in learning. They paved the way for archaeologists, historians, linguists, geologists, and other scientists who work alongside biblical scholars to piece together the story of Christianity from Abraham to Jesus. Tracing the five biblical men through the lens of Egyptian history show how we inherit, adopt, and adapt presumptions and assumptions by generations of people we trust, whose claims to knowledge form our beliefs. I call this motif CKB, or Claims, Knowledge, and Beliefs. What a treat it is to learn that God was concerned about humans long before any institutionalized religion told us so. There's much more to learn as we test any claims about God before we take them as knowledge and bestow upon them the status of beliefs. What you believe about God is worthy of your time and effort.